welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And we are at our third event on our Pacific Northwest Tour. Can you believe it? Our third event. And we are in front of a live audience. Live audience, prove you're alive. Well, that's great. We're, I, I, and tonight we're actually at the church that I serve here in the Pacific Northwest. Every once in a while, well, every show I say I, I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest and I mention this church or I allude to it in some way. But now I can say this is it. This is the, the building that we meet in and some of our congregation. And we have some guests. We have folks who are here from other churches and we're really happy for that. But uh, anyway, uh, before we go any further, we'll start with how we, you know, kind of roll every time with introductions. So I'm C.R. Wiley, and as I noted, I, I'm a pastor. I've also been a professor of philosophy, and I've even been a building contractor and an investor in real estate. So I've done that from, since the early 90s. And uh, now um, I've gotten some, uh, some books that I've uh, written, and uh, one book uh, in particular that's uh, nearly uh, available uh, to actually look at and read, but you can order it now because it's available for pre-order, and it's the book on Tom Bombadil. And I've been pleased to see how the pre-orders have been going, and the fact that some, uh, you know, really decent people want to read it and review it, so I'm excited about that. But anyway, enough about me. Why don't we go to you, uh, Tom, and then Glenn. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy. I uh, teach Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary at the Boston campus and University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. Writing something right now, I've been giving it away over and over again, but uh, <laughs> it is taking shape and form, so hang in there. It's almost here. <laughs> right, right. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University. Uh, my current day job is I work for uh, Ken Boa with Reflections Ministries. I also am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I've got my own ministry, uh, Every Square Inch Ministries, and my next book will be coming out sometime next year with uh, Canon Press. It's uh, called Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of biographies of people you've never heard of, but who did uh, lots of really good things. Well, you know, thinking along that line about making a difference and, and uh, the theme of the evening, um, you know, this uh, situation we find ourselves in, this uh, new reformational era, uh, one of the words that is in the title is resistance. And you've done some work in resistance theory, Glenn. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I published... Well, two books, arguably, with Canon Press. One of them was an edition of a 16th century French Protestant treatise on uh, when it's legitimate to resist uh, the government. Um, it's called uh, Vindicae Contra Tyrannus, or A Vindication of Liberty Against Tyrants. I wrote an introduction for that, and um, uh, shortly thereafter, published my most recent book right now, uh, which is called Slaying Leviathan, which is a history of uh, ideas of limited government and resistance uh, within Christianity, going back all the way to the Church Fathers. So this is this isn't necessarily a new idea. This uh, this idea of resisting the government just didn't come into being with uh, certain events in the last couple of years. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why don't we why don't we kind of begin there? Because as we think about reforming, you know, the idea that there's always some reforming that needs to be done, 
that this is a task that's uh, not just simply behind us, but before us, as the introduction earlier that Joseph gave us gave, give, you know, indicates. Uh, can you give us a kind of a quick review uh, of what you know, uh, resistance theory is, and in particular, how the Huguenots in France uh, did such a, a marvelous job developing it for us, uh, and can you maybe make a connection to maybe the, even the American Revolution there? Define quick. <laughs> you have two minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. It, it, uh, th- there's a lot of earlier roots we can go to, but the key figure is Luther. And uh, during the Reformation, Luther uh, recovered the gospel. Um, a number of the territories within the Holy Roman Empire uh, converted to Lutheranism. Um, now, I'm going to quote Voltaire here, uh, even though he's an Enlightenment philosopher who hated Christianity. Voltaire described uh, the Holy Roman Empire as a triple misnomer. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. <laughs> what it really was was a confederation of states. And a number of these states converted to Lutheranism. And the emperor was not really happy about this, and he was making all kinds of rumblings about trying to force the Lutheran princes back to Catholicism. Uh, He had his hands full fighting the French and the Turks, um, so he couldn't really act on it right away, but the Lutheran princes weren't going to wait around, so they set up a defensive league uh, in the city of Schmalkalden, which then became known as the Schmalkaldic League, and they came to Luther with the, you know, with the uh, treaty basically that they had set up, and they asked Luther for his blessings on it, and he said, absolutely not. And they said, what? And he said, no, we can't do that, Romans 13. <laughs> can't do that. And so the princes were kind of stuck. They were trying to defend Luther's Reformation, but Luther wouldn't agree with them. Um, So they did the only thing that they could think of. They sent in the lawyers. And uh, the lawyers uh, told Luther, basically, what you're saying is true, but you aren't taking into account the Holy Roman Empire, the structure, the legal structure of the Holy Roman Empire. The constitution of the Holy Roman Empire has the emperor elected by the princes. If the princes are the ones who put him in power, then it's the prince's duty to oversee him. And by the law of the empire then, which actually has authority even over the emperor himself, if the emperor breaks his word or does something illegal, it is the prince's duty to resist him. So in essence, what they were saying is that when Romans 13 says, submit to the governing authorities, frankly, that includes not just the emperor, but the princes, they're part of the governing authorities, but along with that, the law is the supreme governing authority. If the emperor does things that the law does not allow him to do, you've got to resist him, and that's perfectly legitimate. So Luther agreed with this, when he, when he heard the reasoning, and he issued a thing called the Torgau Memorandum, which said that, okay, if the lawyer's arguments are correct here, then it is, in fact, okay for the lesser magistrates, that is to say, the people in the government lower than the emperor, to resist people above them when they do something illegal, break their word, or whatever. 
Okay, that's the beginning of resistance theory. That idea is going to spread pretty quickly. It's going to make its way to France, where the Huguenots are going to have to deal with this because they were actively, well, starting in, in 1563, there was a series of interminable wars of religion in France. Hmm. Uh, the pattern was there'd be a provocation, usually by the Catholic side, frequently a massacre or something like that. The Protestant side would mobilize, there'd be a war. At the end of the war, um, basically, they'd get exhausted and they'd stop fighting, and they'd give the Protestants either more or fewer rights to worship than they had at, at the previous one, depending on how well they did on the battlefield, rinse and repeat. This thing happened cycle over and over and over again. Well, at one point, without going through the details, there was a, um, a safe conduct given to the Protestants to go to Paris uh, for a wedding, and during this, uh, a couple of things went disastrously wrong, and the end result was probably 20,000 French Protestants massacred across the country. Um, maybe more, depending on who you're, whose estimates you're looking at. And at that point, the Protestants had to ask themselves a question, when does a legitimate king turn into an illegitimate tyrant? And one answer that they came up with is, well, maybe it's when he starts massacring his own people for no particular reason. Um, and this is then going to create another series of political treatises and development of political theory, including the, uh, the book I wrote the introduction to, the Mendicii. Uh, that, in turn, is going to be a major influence on the Puritans in England, and it is going to be one of the major works that's going to influence the American Revolution as well. Um, I should note that the English Puritans, along with the Scots, had their own particular version of this. Um, the major difference being that they incorporated some of Calvin's ideas about government in there. Basically, Calvin argued that government well, when God set up his government over Israel, he did it in the form of a contract that required the people's consent. If God does it that way, all government should be done that way. Government is basically covenantal, later termed contractual, and it's based on the consent of the governed. So, in the Puritans in England and the Scots, a number of them said, well, wait a minute, if the government is set up as a covenant between the king and the people, then it's not the lesser magistrate that has the right to re lead resistance. The people do when the king ends up doing something illegal, violating their rights or whatever. That is going to be a major influence on Locke, which is going to be a major influence on Jefferson, which takes us into the American Revolution again. That was more than two minutes. I apologize. <laughs> but this is, but it's, it's really a, a worthwhile 30 uh, minutes that you've taken, <laughs> Glenn, because uh, nobody in uh, our uh, high school education, uh, nobody even in our churches acquaints us with these historical uh, you know, developments and uh, precedents and uh, actual facts that uh, influence not just simply our self-understanding as Reformed people, but our self-understanding as Americans. Mm -hmm. So there has been a leavening influence in our society uh, when it comes to the Reformed faith at the political level. And this is something that obviously people who uh, are not interested in helping us understand that uh, are unwilling to you know, help you see or help us see. But this is uh, 
not radical, you know, revisionist stuff that you're presenting to us. This is, this is you're, you're a, uh, well, this is your field of study, you know, early modern history, Reformation, particularly in France. So this is, this is right in your wheelhouse. So uh, now what I like to do is, you know, we've talked about, you know, resistance theory and this, its uh, application to, uh, you know, governing authorities and whether those authorities are behaving in a, le in a legitimate way or illegitimately. I like to sort of spread this out, think about it more broadly, because um, I think that, you know, as, as we think about this, this matter, we need to think about the various spheres in our, in our you know, our, our, our social world uh, that help us uh, or, or inform us and that we live in and, and work in. Um, you know, when I think about the Christian faith today, uh, we could say that there are certain ways in which um, the governing authorities are uh, going about their work that uh, is in some sense uh, hindering the church. But I'd like to kind of branch you know, things out, like I noted, into other, other areas. Uh, one of those maybe being popular culture, another one maybe even being um, kind of the, the, uh, the world of the church, ecclesial authorities and so forth. And uh, what are some things that we need to keep in mind? So, so as we, as we you know, sort of provide a kind of framework for understanding what, I, what I'm getting at here, uh, the title of, the, of our time tonight, or the subject that we've been, getting, we've been given, is Strategic Defense, Resistance, and Advancement in the New Reformational Era. So we've talked a little bit about resistance uh, when you talked about that, Glenn. Let's think about these other matters. So let me kick it over to you, Tom. If, if you wanted to uh, address any particular thing that could be put under one of those categories, defense, resistance, and advancement, what do, you, what do you feel like you'd like to talk about first? Uh, I think a, a issue that I think is at, a, at root for the Christian before they move into answering those things is something I think that would have been recaptured by the Reformation and, and, and really been brought to, especially the West, from Christianity. Would th and that would be a distinct understanding of what it means to be a free human creature. Um, I, I, I think the... That freedom that we refer to that instigated all of these things was grounded in the fundamental Christian insight that there is a more fundamental relation of the human being than their relationship to the state, to creaturely things, and that is their fundamental relation to God. But because the nature of this relationship is the glorious freedom of the children of God. There is a freedom from the absolute determination of any other creaturely thing on the human because they're fundamentally determined by their relationship to God, which is a determination on, of freedom, not to enslavement and fear. So I think it is from this wellspring, this theological root, that Christians understood and brought this notion of freedom. And of course, there are secular variants of it. There are enlightenment distortions of it. But I think that it, it, it's really, you talk about renewal at the heart, advancement. You're talking about renewal of something that we need to really get clear on so that we can make sense of these things the right way. So we've got, when we talk about freedom, uh, we're talking about something, or at least the word, refers to something that 
has a very specific s sort of uh, set of uh, conditions yeah. that inform it that you, you're referring to. And, but at the same time, we live in a world where when someone says the word freedom, everybody thinks they know what, what it means. What it means. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think what I'm hearing you say is, uh, no, <laughs> your idea of freedom might actually be slavery. Slavery. That's right. <laughs> uh, and you just don't see it. That's right. We, we think of it in, in, in a, some, I mean, there are a lot of things, for example, I find a, a shared agreement with, for example, of libertarians. But one of the things there I would have an issue as a Christian with some of their understanding is the understanding of the will as though it generates out of its own wellspring right and wrong, good, bad for itself. That's not what Christian freedom is. Christian freedom grows out of its determination from our relationship to God. So it, it, it is a formed freedom. It's one that is ordered towards the way the creation is meant to flourish. That's why it's for our good. That's why it's something grounded in our, in our nature and in the purposes of God for us. And that's why it's freedom, because you truthfully enact what you're created to be. Well, you see, this is where I think many of our friends who are libertarian in outlook, uh, you know, just kind of their eyes glaze over or smoke begins to pour out of their ears when they, <laughs> when they hear uh, something like, the truth will make you free. Yeah. For them... Uh, at least the, the, some of the folks that I've interacted with, truth somehow impinges upon their freedom. They think of truth as sort of something that uh, robs them of freedom, and what they're looking for is kind of freedom in, an, in a different sense, kind of an absolute sense. That's right, yeah. yeah. So can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, well, for a creature, there is no absolute sense of freedom, because what it means to be a creature is to have your being from one that is the source of all being. It's your very nature of being. You can't generate the source of your own being, so you're not free in that sense. You have no autonomy in that sense. Yeah, but they behave as though they they, they want. Yeah, they're taking something that belongs to God, um, creation ex nihilo, and acting like they can apply it to themselves. And they often have a, a, a sort of an understanding of God that's yeah. erroneous. So yeah. they think of God as some kind of big person yeah. who robs them of their freedom by taking up too much space. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, like when you think about, like when you sit down yeah. and, and have pizza with your friend mm -hmm. and your pizza, you know, and your, the pizza's only so big and your friend is three times your size, yeah. you know, and he, and he just takes three quarters of the pizza and that's leaves a, that one yeah. quarter for you. You're like, your freedom has impinged on my freedom. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> my that, freedom to have a whole pizza has been limited by your freedom to have most of the pizza. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's a great point because I think what is behind that is a flawed view of God. God is seen as one more agent within the same sphere of of agencies that humans are in. God's just bigger. Right. So God is the biggest thing around, the most powerful thing around. And this is why people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Yeah. You know, they don't believe in a God that actually doesn't exist because that's the God that that's they, the they want to prove doesn't exist, yeah. and we agree with them. That, that God does not exist. That's You're absolutely right. right. So, so a, good, a, a way of putting it, and this can be a little confusing, but I'm going to try my best to kind of paint the picture of what I'm talking about here. So it has, it has entered the modern mind in a lot of the church to view God as though God shares the same space as everything else that exists. So to ask the question, does God exist or not, for example, right? Is there a God? Um, automatically presumes that we have this big circle called existence, right? This existence is the big circle. And God is in it, and everything else that exists is in it, 
right? And so for the atheist, they're just saying, well, there is no God that's in that circle of existence. Take him out, and I'm more free than I was. Yeah, before. I'm more free. Now, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm bigger in the existence plane. The Christ, classic Christian vision, if you, you follow, follow Paul in Acts, quoting the, the pagan poets, in him you live and move and have your being. God isn't one more thing within that circle of existence. God's the very source of the existence. God isn't one more thing in a chain of beings, but the infinite source of anything there is at all. And so God's, God, God is what it means to exist because God is existence itself. I am this, being itself. And so, and so the human creature, therefore, is not in competition with God because the human being gets everything it has from God. So it's determined by God, and it's, it's created, and it's free in that relation. God's not in competition because God is working on a whole different order of being. I'll give you another way of putting it. In the Bible, we talk about, you know, John must decrease so that Christ can increase. But that does not mean that the human being must not act at all just because God acts. I'll give you an example. I bet you, and I bet you in your church, everyone in here or most people in here believe children are a gift from God. I'm going to bet on that, right? <laughs> a miracle of God. How many people here believe that children are a creation of God? But how many in here believe that God creates without using human agency to produce those children? There's no competition. God, on the order of giving being and life and determining everything on God's order of being, but in the creaturely realm of action, human beings marry and have a beautiful relationship and children too, right? No competition. That's the Christian view. The modern view is that God is some kind of bigger being than everything else. And so in order for God to create children, humans got to kind of get out of the way. Or in, in this, you know, this idea of, of God you know, sort of taking up a lot of space in yeah. this sort of big circle of existence... Uh, if we think about God in that way, then we come to think about each other in that way as well. Mm -hmm. So even in a marriage, you go from a union to a competition, yes. you know, for attention and power, and yeah. you go from uh, kind of a, a mutually enriching, uh, you know, relationship to a negotiated one. Yeah. Everything is negotiated now. Yeah, that's right. You know, if you get more, I get less. Yeah. You know, and this idea that you know the, the man and the woman have one flesh, that everything they that they uh, participate in is you know the property of both because they're one. Yeah. Is something is lost. Yeah. Uh, on on modern thinkers because of this kind of kind of way of thinking. That's right. Yeah. And and so in terms of freedom, in the classic Christian vision. You can be fully active and fully enacting your creatureliness in all of what it was created to be, freedom, and yet completely dependent on God, and they're not in conflict. Where the modern vision is, if I'm going to be on the stage, God has to get out of the way. And so I have to generate all... I have to basically be liberated from any restraints, and I have to be set free to enact my will on the playing field. So what yeah. I'm hearing you say is in order for us to reform our understanding of freedom, yeah. we need to get back in touch with a Christian understanding of God. Amen. Yep. And that's going to affect everything. Everything. Yeah. It's worth noting two things here. First of all, the description of God as just being the biggest thing in the circle is essentially what pagans believe about God. That's ancient paganism. 
Um, some of the early church fathers commented that when a pagan says the word God and when a monotheist says the word God, they don't mean the same thing, yeah. which is one of the mistakes the new atheists make, where they say, well, you don't believe in Thor, you don't believe in Jupiter, you don't believe in, in you know, Mercury, uh, we just believe in one fewer God than you do. Yeah. They're not getting it. Yeah. They're two radically different concepts of God. Uh, the other part of it, though, is that this is, in essence, what the founding fathers meant when they used the word liberty. You don't find the word freedom in the vocabulary of uh, political thinkers in this period. Um, it, it shows up, but not, not that regularly. Instead, they prefer the word liberty, because the liberty actually has the meaning of the freedom to act within the boundary set by divine and natural law. So liberty can only exist within within a sphere where there are constraints, where there are limitations on what you can do. The alternative to this was what they called license, which is really the modern concept of freedom. Nobody can tell me what to do. I should be completely free from all restraints. Including the restraints of biology. Including the restraints of biology. Nobody believed you had a natural right to license. You have a natural right to liberty, certainly, but nobody would argue you have a natural right to license. And that's, yet that's exactly what we've ended up with uh, when we talk about freedom in, in the country today. Um, that's l largely because of the absolute uh, destruction of the concept of virtue and a whole bunch of other things which we can't really get into right now. But um, you know, when we're talking about freedom today, people in our culture just simply do not understand it, either in a Christian sense or in the sense that our founding documents use the word liberty. Now, when we think about where do we start, I mean, just with, the, with this, this particular matter, freedom, I mean, this is fundamental when it comes to, you know, what it means to be an American. And, and, and before I, I, I forget, while we're on that note, is in the issue of human freedom, for example, is really one of the main conflict areas that are going on today. I'll give you an example. A lot of times, especially with the kind of big woke social justice world, um, some people's freedom equ equals the the loss of freedom for others. One, yeah, kind of the this kind of the pie thing, you know. But more they, you get, less I have. They don't think that the problem sits in the wrong kind of human think freedom, other than those that exercise power that shouldn't belong to it. So, but say when they talk about the system, or the social structure, or the social construct. They're not seeing that it's a problem within the wrong kind of notion of human freedom. It's that is at issue. Everyone that has become an oppressor at one point or another was one time oppressed, right? So what didn't happen when they move from one place to the other is the conversion of their freedom to the right kind. And this is what I think is missing in that issue. So when we talk about, when we talk about reform and renewal, we really have to get at the heart of what's going on in that notion of human freedom. Um, we can't just talk freedom and liberty without rooting it in a proper Christian sense. Now, uh, I think you'll probably uh, you know, know where I'm going with this. Um, where do we start? You know, what, where, where do we, you know, is, it, is it with political action? Is it with the education system? Where do we start? Any thoughts? In the church. There you go. You knew where I was going. <laughs> so That was a gimme. <laughs> it's like when I was uh, teaching Caleb to hit when he was a little guy, get a really big ball and a really big bat and throw it real slow. And 
He did every time. So um, now when we think about that, that implies something, I think, at least a few things. One of the things it implies is that we maybe have more leverage than we think we do as the church. Yeah. But I think it also implies that uh, maybe we're not using the lever, or maybe we don't even know how to use a lever, or maybe we don't even know we have a lever, yeah. or maybe we just don't even know what freedom is in the church anymore. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you guys think about this stuff a lot. I think about this stuff a lot. It's uh, some of the most frustrating uh, you know, time I spend uh, when it comes to thinking about these things is listening to people who speak in the name of the Christian faith and have about, as, you know, in, in terms of their historical awareness, the yeah. depth of their thought is just not there. So w- what do you think we need to focus on? How do we approach this? In Matthew 9, when Matthew talked about Jesus' ministry up to a certain point, and then he gives a summary of it, um, it says he went around preaching in the synagogues and healing their diseases and so on. And then it says he looked at the crowds and saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think that's actually a pretty good description of our society today. And um, it says he had compassion on them, and he tells the apostles to, his disciples, he tells them to pray that God would send workers into the harvest, and then he proceeds to send them. Um, But it's interesting, when you look at his instructions, I would summarize them as show and tell. Show the world that is harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Show them what the kingdom looks like. He tells them to heal the sick, uh, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead, and so on, and then preach. The order is kind of interesting. Um, What I would say is the takeaway for that is that the first thing we need to do in the church is to get our own act together to the point where we can show the world an alternative to what they've got. And what that means is we've got to think about building community. Uh, we've got to think about working to um, uh, reconcile differences between different groups. We've got to think about um, pr- meeting each other's needs, those kinds of things. And from that base, reaching out and doing that into the communities around us. The fact of the matter is, no matter where you are, the communities are going to be in trouble. There are needs that are there that we as the church should be reaching out and trying to meet. This is part of what showing the kingdom looks like. And when you do that, it provides you with a context which you can do take the next step, which is then telling them about the kingdom. We need to demonstrate by the way we live and by what we are doing an alternative to the chaos that exists outside. That was a lot, Glenn. <laughs> I'm taking it in. Um, there are a lot of way. There are a lot of things I, I could would want to say on this. Um, I, I think a couple things come to mind that complement kind of what Glenn was saying. Um, the, I mean, one thing of, of, from the Reformation I would say is um, retrieval. Um, retrieval. What does that mean? It means that we have as Christians. We don't start from scratch. We don't invent the wheel every time. We think we do sometimes, but we don't. And so what that means is foundational, as Glenn just did, we go back to the primary source, Holy Scripture. But we don't need to become 
uh, alarmists when we say that Holy Scripture did not jump from when it was written to our lap. There have been thousands of years of Christian reflection on this that are not the same authority as Holy Scripture, but they're the conversation of Christians who have had to interpret Scripture and live it out. It's a wisdom base. It's a set of riches that the Spirit has given the church through teachers across time, which we probably don't agree with everything. But they have something to say because they are brothers and sisters. One theologian said, honoring your father and mother in the faith. You're, you're, you, you, we begin to be immersed in a Christian understanding of things. Holy Scripture, central authority, but read in communion of saints. And if Christ is risen and all in Christ are risen in him, then there are no dead saints, period. They're alive in Christ, and because we're in Christ and they're in Christ, we can read them looking for wisdom, looking where they missed the mark, learning where they had something to teach us. That's a second thing, retrieval. This is what the reformers did. You can't open Calvin's Institutes and not see him engaging, not just scripture, 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 but theologian, theologian, who got it right, who got it wrong. He said some harsh things about those who got it wrong, but he said some very kind things when they got it right. And what he was doing is immersing us in a set of riches we've been given, um, being a church, um, where we can start thinking fresh about these things, challenging those blind spots where we've adopted things from the modern world and, and our society that have eclipsed us to truth that, that uh, maybe they will shed light on. I'll give you an example. You read most theologians from the New Testament all the way up to the 17th century, and their view of God is one that is not what is preached in most churches today. Today. Right. today. Right. So, and how do we know that? Well, I've read them, right. 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 <laughs> and others have as well. And so when you're liberated to start to see what a real classic vision of God is, grounded in the scriptures, carved out through wisdom, then you can start to address the questions you have today from a set of resources that the, the, the challenges of the world, they look, you almost look at them with laughter because they're not oh, yeah. even, they, they don't even have anything to stand up to it. Um, so retrieval, um, again, renewal, reform, always bring it to reform. So we don't read the tradition as an authority in and of itself, we read it in conversation with Scripture. So those places where it didn't get it right, we're continually communing with the Scriptures as well. The other thing is the theocentric vision of, of, of the Christian vision. Um, one of the things you see in Romans uh, 11, um, the focus, from him, through him, and to him are all things. Okay? The purpose of this life isn't just to get it right here and now. It's not to build our empire, right? It's from him, through him, and to him. And scripture says, seek you first the kingdom of God and the wealth of his righteousness, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength first above all things, right? When you pray this prayer, what do you pray? My kingdom come? No. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. When you do that, guess what happens? The form of eternity takes shape in the now. The kingdom comes. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The eternal focus of Christians. Jesus said it himself. You want to know what eternal life is? It's to know my Father and him who he sent. So knowing God, not just about God, but communion with the eternal God and being a people shaped by that Christocentric form, we will embody 
what it is that the world has no access to and no defense against. I mean, that would be my way of putting right, it. Right, right. Seems to me, that, you know, uh, and this seems to be, the, I think, uh, a shared outlook by many people that we're at a, we're at a really, I think, um, crisis moment. Crito. Yeah. Time for judgment. Yeah. So what we mean when we say a crisis is that the people who find themselves in the crisis need to determine what they're going to do in light of that crisis. You know, you can also think about it in terms of God's judgment. Yeah. So um, what are some things kind of on the ground? I mean, you know, we've been, you know, operating in the stratosphere and in sort of metaphysics and some pretty significant uh, theology. When it comes to, you know, life in the church, we've talked about maybe reaching out, you know, and, and trying to meet people and address their needs and pray for the sick and so forth. But in terms of uh, maybe some other matters that you could identify and say, I wish uh, more churches were doing this, or I wish Christians were doing that, does anything come to mind? I think one of the problems that we have, if you look at the statistics across the board, um, we lose 85% of our youth when they go to college. 85%. And the reason why I think that that happens uh, is that we either have youth programs that are more about playing games than discipling, hmm. or we fail to explain, the, the, the thing that, that gets people when they go off to college more than anything else is questions of morality. You know, uh, that's gonna be the thing that'll pull them away more often than not. And what we do is we teach them the what but not the why. If we don't explain the whys behind Christian sexual ethics and things like that, they're gonna be sitting ducks when they get to college. Hmm. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to understand ourselves, the whys, and we need to communicate that to the next generations. Because if we, well, we've gotta get over our embarrassment about talking about things like this because they're gonna be getting it from somebody. So now you so, were a professor of history at a secular institution, a state school in the state of Connecticut. <laughs> you can't get much more sort of liberal than that, <laughs> unless you're in the Ivy League. And uh, you were there for 30 years, so you're speaking from experience. You're not saying, I've heard about this mm. sort of thing. You, you saw it happen again and again. Yeah, absolutely. And... One of the things that I found particularly striking is one, one of the students, I used to teach history of Christianity. And so you taught the history of Christianity in, in a, a secular, secular school, school in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. Um, but one, one of the comments I got through the back door from one of the Christian students who was in the class was that one of the complaints he was hearing from other people in the class is that I made Christianity sound way too reasonable. <laughs> See, now, 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 this says a lot. This says a lot. That's it. You know, it says, first of all, that um, we're not being represented well by yeah. the academy. In other words, yeah. we're being presented uh, in ways that are not accurate. But maybe it also says something about our our ministers and their failure to present the Christian faith and its yeah. history, yeah. right? Uh, maybe it says something about 
I don't know, even the Christians who are in the academy, uh, are, 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 are we seeing them? Now, I know you, Glenn, because you know, we've known each other for years, and I actually, I actually uh, have heard from people who were students at your school who don't know that I know you. <laughs> and I've heard them talk about you, and you know, you know, everybody knew what you stood, about, stood for. You, there was no mystery what Glenn Sunshine was all about. You weren't like hiding your light under a bushel. <laughs> so, you know, any thoughts on any of those, those matters? Pastors, you know, and what they do, professors and what they do. Any thoughts on any of that? Two things. Um, first of all, it's worth noting that despite all of that, I never got in trouble. <laughs> and the reason I didn't get in trouble is I'm basically a nice guy. <laughs> I get along with people. You don't have to be strident about this. Um, so that, that's just sort of an observation. But I think that overall, we have done such a bad job at catechizing ourselves and the next generation that we have not prepared the coming generation for the problems that they're going to be facing, the challenges they're going to be facing. Um, we need to, I mean, Christianity is eminently reasonable. It makes sense. It's logical. It works. There are good reasons to believe it. We don't communicate this. Uh, we, we don't teach people, like I said, the whys of ethics, uh, those kinds of things. We just need to be better at communicating and, and um, well, catechizing the faith which means more than just having them memorize the Westminster Confession. Um, it means talking it through and making sure that they understand what's going on and why. It means, frankly, going beyond the confessions, which is all that we frequently think of when we talk about catechesis, um, to dealing with the sort of ground-level issues that are the challenges that we face and that our kids are increasingly facing in society. If we don't do that, we lose them. That's one of the reasons why we got the podcast off the ground. Right. You know, for, you know, just, we, we talk about the, 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 the subject of language a lot on the podcast. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard a pastor address the subject of language in the church, ever, yeah. ever address it. Does language have the capacity to tell the truth? Yeah. Truth with a capital T, not my lived experience, but reality yeah. with a capital R. Or is it all, yeah. you know, turtles all the way down, subjectivity all the way down, words referring to words all the way down, or does something refer to something else that's real? Can a pastor in, a, in, a, in any of our churches do I can tell you what I, what I know about theological education. Almost zero attention to that particular matter is given. Well, and, and one of the things I think that, that it, it makes it difficult, and this is hard work, I'm just going to be, be honest, but it's necessary work, is we have to become knowledgeable, not just in, in the theological tradition and the reading of scriptures and theology, but know where you're going. Not, first of all, <laughs> knowledgeable also in understanding the alternative conceptions and what's at the root of them. Now you mean alternative conceptions meaning outside the Christian faith? Of what it means to be a human. I'm going to give an example why. 
we are shaped constantly, all of us, by the culture, the context. We have, we, I bet you every one of us, some of us I can see with our phones right now, that thing is filtering in. Like it or not, we all use it. It's okay. You don't have to put your phone down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I'm just saying is that all of the technology we have is, is also shaping us and importing conceptions of what it means to be a human, to interact with others and everything all the time. Our children are growing up with it very quickly. Um, let's say we didn't have those technologies. It, it still would be happening, right? I mean, what, what is discipleship but putting off the old and putting on the new? I mean, it, it's the fact that this is a continuous process going on. Um, but one of the things that happens is, let, let's, let's, let me tell it the way Alistair McIntyre put it a different way. Let's say we found a book um, it was written from thousands and thousands of years ago, and we just kind of learned to make sense of, of how to read it. And we read it now for the first time. How much of that book would we be really understanding in terms of what it was trying to communicate? I mean, maybe some. But we would probably also be put, putting into or reinterpreting that book in light of what we think about everything. We do it with the Bible, right? We read a particular passage, and we think it's talking about something very familiar to what we have here now. And the only way of dealing with that isn't just to go back to the history and understand what it meant. What it also means is understanding what we mean when we talk about certain things and experiences. One of the most fundamental questions right now that we have to answer is what does it mean to be a human being what is the nature of being a human being, and what shape and form does that nature take when it is lived out faithfully to what it was created to be? Right now, most of our schools are teaching, for example, forms of like expressivism. To be a human being is to express yourself by the choices you make in the wants and desires you think are good for you. You can pick your own gender, you can pick your own um, self-conception, you can define everything for yourself. It's an expression of yourself. Do you know how fundamentally at odds the Christian faith is to that? But a lot of times we read, I, I mean, I go to church after church after church, and people really, truly believe that the gospel is all about themselves and their best life now without putting a question mark over their understanding of themselves, They don't understand that their conception of their self has so reinterpreted the Christian faith that they've changed it. So we have a lot of uh, maybe archeological work to do in digging to uproot these assumptions, expose them, and then shed theological light on them. And I think that's what the podcast is trying to inaugurate. All right, when we think about the world, you know, there's the world that God loved, sent his son to save, for God so loved the world. Yeah. But that's not the only uh, way the world is spoken of in Scripture. Yeah. We're also told that anyone who loves the world yeah. hates God. So there is a, an order of th things that's fundamentally at war with the truth, and that surrounds us and shapes our thinking unknowingly, and that's why we cannot be conformed to this world, but we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds yeah. so that we can know what God's will is. So there's a, 
there's a, a when it comes to catechesis, it's not simply being able to answer all the questions correctly right. in the yeah. in the catechism. And it, you have to actually understand, yeah. you know, what's being addressed when yeah. we talk about these matters. You know, and uh, the world is on a you know sort of constantly work or reworking its its approach yeah. uh, to to be you know more I guess uh, seductive uh, more. I guess uh, effective at it, you know, at, at undermining our our, you know, the understanding of what is r- real and not, and, and you know where I'm going with that. Yeah. So with all that in mind, it, it it's just it can be quite overwhelming, of course, for a pastor sure. who says, "Okay, I, I've got your attention for how long?" You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. maybe if you if if you're a Reformed Church, 45 minutes on Sunday. If uh, if you're one of these seeker sensitive churches, 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm supposed to address everything yeah. that the world has thrown at you through all these means uh, over the course of a week. Uh, well. The good news is, is that the word of God and what the world has to say are not unequal. That's right. You know, they're not equal. Uh, God's word is powerful and effective. Nevertheless, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that we're not doing. So we need to do a better job of catechesis. Uh, we need to do a better job of sort of understanding uh, what the world is saying to us. Would you say, though, Tom, that that includes may- maybe being able to... to uh, Understand the world on, on its own terms in the sense that you end up, end up under, knowing it better than it knows itself. Yeah, I think that's the whole point of um, you know, be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. I mean, you, you, to be wise as a serpent means you've got to have a little bit of a of a sense of what's going on there, doesn't it? In order to also communicate the gospel, in that, in in, in a way, I mean, if we we want to relate it, since we're, to, we're you know kind of reflecting on the Reformation in particular. I mean, one of the things the Reformation, maybe sometimes it went overboard, but it was iconoclastic. It wanted to tear down those things that eclipsed the truth about God and what would enslave creatures rather than the liberation of the gospel. And I think this is a form we need to become iconoclastic in healthy ways of uprooting out of the church all of the garbage that the world has spilled into it. And we have to become, I mean, we have to become zealous for that truth. Because if we don't, it, it's, it's going to infect worse than it has already. Right, right. Yeah. So, Glenn, you've, you've been listening for a little bit. I imagine there's some things that have percolated in your mind that you want to share with us. Yeah, I actually want to change direction a little bit. Okay. One of the things that... You know, I've worked, I work pretty closely with Chuck Colson for the last eight years of his life on worldview stuff. And my definition that I came up with ultimately for what a biblical worldview is, it's simply understanding and living out the lordship of Christ in every area of life. The in every area of life here is really important. Because as we look at this process, and this is one of the things I would say is one of the great successes of the Reformation is they rediscovered the idea that you don't have to be in the clergy to serve God. That, you know, Luther talked frequently about Christian cobblers and the cobbler performing a, a work that was just as much uh, work for God as the, the priest. 
because he was doing a work that was done fundamentally in service of his neighbor to keep their feet warm and dry. And this is an act of love. Uh, where, where this leads me to is that in the process of thinking about reformation, one of the things we need to do is not just think defensively, but actually, and this ties in with what I said earlier about providing an alternative vision of community and vision of the world, uh, we need to take our Christian faith and bring it out into all of the various sectors of the world that we are uh, we are involved in. You know, we need to, uh, if we own a business, we need to run the business following godly principles. If we're an employee, we need to be an employee following godly principles, working as unto the Lord, not as unto men. We need to do this in our communities. We need to do this in our schools, um, it, whatever kind of education is going on in the area. We need to bring this into every area of life. This is uh, known as the cultural mandate. Uh, it's what God created us to do in Genesis. We are to produce culture. That is what ultimately the commands to God in the garden boil down to. You are to build culture. And as Christians, this is one of the things we need to be thinking about. How do we build community? Yes. Uh, how do we run businesses as Christians? Yes. How do we act as employees? Yes. How do we work in our neighborhoods? Yes. And just sort of generally, how do we develop a Christian culture? Um, and I think that is a that is, is simply a critical part of this. We, we are known for what we're against. We're not known for what we're for. So what we need to do is also work just as hard, not just defensively against the attacks of the world, but offensively at producing something that is going to last because it is founded ultimately on God. A couple of thoughts come to mind as you are just, you know, talking about culture, Glenn. One is Culture and cultivate have the same root in cult, and cult obviously is worship. So culture, when we think about uh, culture, it's the way in which worship uh, works itself out in the development and the flourishing, the building up of, uh, the development of uh, people uh, and institutions in ways that glorify God. So that implies, of course, you've got to have people, and to have people you need to have children, <laughs> right? And so, you know, we're pronatal. You know, we're, we, we think children are a great thing. Are a great, it's great to have children. That's probably a better way to have, say it. Mm -hmm. And that uh, children ought to be raised to the glory of God, and that's part of culture building. There's also kind of the uh, sort of taking ground aspect. So that's kind of building ground. You know, sort of. You can think about households as you know, and as we establish households, and children are born into them, and they're raised in the faith. We see kind of culture building from the ground up. But then there's also kind of claiming ground. So, like when we started our theology pub, which was kind of like a theology on tap event, the idea was we would go outside the church into an environment that was about as secular as we could uh, could find, and we would take some territory, you know, once a month. And we would have speakers addressing subjects that would be of general interest. So the way you and I met Tom 
is uh, we had Tom come and talk about ecology of all things. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom came and talked to us about uh, you know the, the, the natural world, you know, and sort of how Christians should think about the environment and so forth. And by the time he was done, Glenn and I said we need to get to know this guy a little better. <laughs> but anyway, we did that every month, and we had it was the kind of thing that we could invite people to and to, to, to sit alongside us and listen and think and talk with us about really matters that were really very, I guess, immediately obviously important or, or of, of interest, largely speaking or generally speaking, in our, in our community. And uh, it led to lots of great relationships, and it was a positive thing. So I, I kind of think about it in, in two respects, you know, when we think about advancement. That's right. You know, we ought, we ought to think about it in terms of sort of grassroots, building things from the grounds up, ground up, but also going out and taking ground. Yeah, I th- I think uh, yeah you have I mean the the I mean the side of discipleship um, is is of course central, always central, um, going out and making disciples. Um, and bringing all things into conformity to Christ, that's the other. I mean, that's what, that's what any Christian has been up to. I, it often frustrates me sometimes when I see in certain circles um, Christians attack certain times of Christian history as if they understood what was going on, usually. But secondly, because they don't realize that a lot of times Christians were trying to bring all things into conformity to Christ. We may not li- like the way it looks now, but we wouldn't have come to now without some of that process, at least the way it was carried out. Um, but one of the things I was, I was kind of thinking about here is it, there's something that also um, we have. Again, I always, I always say, I always teach my students in theology class, what is it Christians have that no one else has? What is it that we have that no one else has? And what else? The, these kinds of things are what we're supposed to be about. Now, one of the most beautiful things sometimes we forget about is it's the utter, incomparable joy of having being brought into the inner sanctum of the Holy Trinity in Christ. That is why we're created. This is eternal life, to know the Father and to know the Son, to know them in the bliss of their eternal communion so that some of that bliss can be experienced now. What is the chief end to be a human? What does it mean to be a human in a Christian sense? What is the chief end, purpose, to know God, to glorify, and to enjoy Him forever? Joy is another one, it being community that exhibits the eternal joy and in, in cultivates that joy is that which creates an environment that exalts Christ and lifts him up in a way that draws people to him, right? And I think sometimes, because we are sometimes forlorn and we are sometimes not always feasting, um, we're always kind of focusing on the battles and the wars and, and, and all the rest of it. Sometimes we lose the sense that the profound rich, riches at the center of this whole thing is the joy of eternal life. And, and again, this is another thing I think that needs to be up front and central, not just kind of a background presupposition. Yeah, so we should probably start wrapping things up so we can kind of move to the next phase of our, our evening together. But 
Just to let you know, I mean, Tom does teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and most of his students there are believers. <laughs> I'm having a little joke there. Most. <laughs> most. Not all the professors. No, I'm not. <laughs> but I you also just lost us, my job. You teach at St. Joseph's. You teach at St. Joseph's, which is, like most Catholic schools, a very, uh, kind of a very sort of uh, watered-down uh, you know, environment, and many of your students are coming out of very a wide range of backgrounds. I taught in a, in a similar environment. Most of my students were coming from outside the church. So three of us have been, you know, professors in environments we've, where we've been surrounded by students who don't know the truths that, uh, can, you know, and the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. And can you say that you ever came across a student that you thought, man, he has something I don't have? I mean, one uh, you of know what I'm getting at. Yeah. It, no. That's right. Well, what <laughs> I see is the, the, the other side of it, and, and this is, I mean, I see it more at St. Joseph. I see, well, I see it at both. But at, at, I, I have to teach uh, Introduction to Christian Theology at St. Joseph. It's, of course, every student that goes to the, the, the school goes, and it's the Catholic schools, but most of the people that go there aren't Catholic, or if they are, they don't have a clue about Christianity. And I tell you what, they all come in with a kind of arrogance that, that this is going to be the stupidest class they've ever taken in their life. And I've watched them leave with their, their mouths open and jaws dropped. They had no idea Christianity was about these riches. And that's the kind of thing that I think that that was, that's my joy teaching in that environment. Yeah, that's what I preferred. Yeah. That's what yeah. I preferred. So anyway, uh, I, I think that that's a good way to kind of wrap things up. We really have something, folks, that the world doesn't have. The problem is, is that we don't even appreciate it as well as we should. It's, you know, it's sort of like uh, owning a property with millions of dollars buried in the backyard and you just don't know it's there and you never think to dig in the spot where the millions of dollars are located. That's the way it is with most Christians. They even just though the spot is marked. <laughs> <laughs> it makes, dig, dig here. here. <laughs> but that's really the way most Christians uh, think, behave, when, it, when, they, when, they, when they sort of reflect upon what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. They, they, they don't know what they've got going for them. And, and the three of us, we've been in environments where we're surrounded you know, day after day after day by, with, by people who are absolutely clueless, who think they know everything, who know absolutely nothing. <laughs> and the biggest favor that we can give, you know, make, you know, provide uh, when it comes to, to help, to working with them and teaching them is show them that they don't know anything and just even give them a little hint. You know, there is something out there something, yeah. that you might want to check out, you yeah. know, that, and there, and there it is, it, it, yeah. you know. So anyway, um, I think we should probably wrap up with that. But it's been great to be with you, and it's been great to have another uh, episode of the Theology Pugcast. Uh, we really do appreciate the people who listen to the show. Uh, we have people who contact us from all over the world, literally all over the world every week, who tell us they listen to the show. Uh, one of the neat things that we have uh, with the, the podcasting service that we use is they give us an analysis of our listenership, and we, so we know kind of where people are from. We even know what, how many listeners we have in, in every sort of state and province in the world. We're not <laughs> spying on you, we promise. <laughs> so it's, more, it's just kind of like, I can't believe we've got listeners in Madagascar. <laughs> and and, and we, can, we can see how many we got and that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, with all of that said, just thank you very much for, for you know, taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to the, to the three of us talk. And thank you to the folks who have come out tonight to listen to us. And uh, we hope it's been worth your time. And uh, we do uh, appreciate your prayers and your support. 
Um, we do, uh, you know, appreciate when any, whenever anybody, you know, rates us on Spotify or Podcaster or I, you know, or I, I you know, iTunes or whatever they call it these days. <laughs> but uh, you know, thank you for that. And uh, it's meta. That's right. <laughs> we even have people who pay attention to us on Meta. <laughs> we did a we did a show on a Meta, the and Metaverse, now not Facebook too long ago. Has changed. It's, 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 it's coming. It's coming about just True. like we feared. But anyway, um, did, did you know that Meta is a Hebrew word that means a dead girl or a dead woman? <laughs> you know, I, I I had not thought about that. I knew about the Greek meaning. But I didn't think about the Hebrew meaning. <laughs> Anyway, thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Bye.